Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each programme will focus on a particular movie and whilst up until now we've been restrictive about our pre-arranged themes, we're doing a few tweaks. The first of which, you know, a bit more organic about letting a theme develop from our reviews slash discussions slash rants slash arguments. We'll still end with some recommendations based on each week's choice but we're hoping to go for a more natural feel to the whole thing. And we're still going to start by introducing ourselves, but we might change that up a bit too. So this week, I am going to introduce us both. Oh God! So my name's—I'll be nice. I'll be nice. My name's Rob Maythorn. I spent the last ten years working in the film industry in the UK, working on everything from big Hollywood films on set to uh, tiny little Welsh language shows that no one's ever heard of. And my my colleague on this podcast is Sam Knowles, who is a decorated teacher and lecturer and writer. He tends to spend his time writing about books, about travel, about movies and about games and about graphic novels. And he's certainly the smart one of the two of us. Decorated makes it sound like I've won medals. I like it. I fear with all those graduation robes, there's some decoration in there, you know. But our final change is that we're going to take it in turns to choose the film because otherwise it's going to turn into a Kevin Smith podcast. This week it was... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So this week it was my choice, and I have picked The Apartment. So some notes about this. It was released in 1960 with a young Shirley MacLaine and young-ish, well, he's older than us, but still young, uh, Jack Lemon. It's about a junior accounting executive, C.C. Baxter, who, to be blunt, is thoroughly bullied by his superiors into giving up his apartment rent-free as a crash pad for use in their extramarital affairs. And because he's naive and pliable, and also because he wants promotion, Baxter goes along with this bizarre schedule, even though it means he has to leave his flat for long periods. And his neighbours, who have to put up with the noise and the mess, think he's a right Lothario. Then he falls for a lift operator, Sean McLean, in his building, and his placid attitude is severely tested when he finds that she's the on-off girlfriend of his married boss, Mr Sheldrake, one of the frequenters of Baxter's apartment. So this is basically where it opens. Rob, your thoughts? Well, anyone who knows listens to podcast knows that my, my tastes tend towards the the less mainstream and certainly the newer. Most of my film collection starts in the mid eighties and goes from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife often comments that I don't like old films, and so I kind of went into this week with a bit of trepidation. This sort of thing really isn't the sort of thing I choose to watch, but I bloody loved it. Good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was really. Not what I was expecting. Uh, we'll touch on more of this down the line a little bit. But it was far darker than I was expecting it to be. It was far longer. And it had a lot more nuance to the characters and to the situation than I suppose I kind of expected. I think I'm a, I'm a big fan of Mad Men. And sort of one of the ideas of, I have about that show is that that's almost that's the true story of that era. And a lot of the culture and the output from that time isn't true. But I really feel that this, like, it, actually there's, there's a lot of depth to it. Hmm. I think it was equal parts funny and sort of not harrowing, but emotionally sad. I think that the two leads were were amazing. I'm, I kind of I want to be that lemon. I kind of want to be with Shelley McLean. <laughs> but no, I really really liked it. Yourself, although I am less in your in your way of thinking about about films in general and more perhaps more open to the idea of maybe older films, more classic films. I am like you. A, Bit. I, I went into this film a bit. I wasn't wasn't sure what, what I was going to think about it, and it is my recommendation for this week. So, I I had more of a sense that I was going to like it, 
than than you were necessarily, but I was genuinely surprised by how much I enjoyed this film. And well, to start with, one of the early things that Baxter does, and it was it was interesting that you mentioned Mad Men there because it's it's something that that happens a lot in Mad Men is that he engaged with pop culture, and that's hmm. well, that's something that we've looked at in previous weeks with Reservoir Dogs and Clerks, and there was a great awareness of the medium of film itself. And when he's flicking through the channels at the beginning and his dissatisfaction about his own life is shown through how he doesn't want to watch a particular film or he gets frustrated by the advert. And I thought the central performances, Lemon was very good. More than that, actually, it was, it was a brilliant combination of frustration at the situation he's placed in by this social structure and yet desire to progress within the same structure and I think that that was something that I that that sort of complexity was something I wasn't necessarily expecting from it and um, I thought McLean was also very good and particularly in the early restaurant scene with Sheldrake I was looking this up afterwards she didn't win any academy awards at this stage in her career I mean her earliest was into the eight, I suppose, the next generation of her career, which kind of surprised me actually. She is quoted as saying that she was down for a Best Actress award until someone else fell ill, and then necessarily they were going to get it because they had this adversity backstory. She she was worthy of it here, although as she said, it was maybe maybe someone else's turn. I thought the bit with the broken mirror was almost mistaken identity comedy, and then it really wasn't. So there's something about this film yes. that it was almost a, almost slapstick, like it, it was verging on the comedic situation, yet never was. What what McLean says says with the broken mirror is. I like it, it makes me look the way I feel. And that's actually a really powerful line. And suddenly it wasn't a comedy at all. And there was that, you get wrong-footed by this film at regular intervals. I would completely echo that. Even in the first half an hour of the film, I think I thought I was getting one sort of film. And then I think, given the film's been out 50 years, I'm happy to put some spoilers in there. And then there's a scene in which the McKinney character tries to kill herself. Hmm. And this completely just kind of left-fielded me on this film. Yeah. And I think that, that that scene and one other element to it, it really kind of showed me the bridge of these genres. And the other element is the neighbour, who I really liked as a character. But in many other films, that character would have been played straight as comedy relief. If you think about something like uh, Breakfast Tiffany's, yeah. whilst having issues around racism, the neighbour is straight comedy relief. Whereas on this, like he was comedy relief and then, then he suddenly wasn't. And he was like active part of the plot, and you know he was, shall I say, very Jewish in in his portrayal on the screen. And I think that he could he kept it in that kind of line of being funny, that being slapstick. And I think this film, I suppose, it's a difference between being funny and being fun. And I would say this film probably isn't fun, but it is funny. Yeah. Well, like you're saying, he could have been com- comic relief, ex- and and then there were really poignant bits with him where he says, well, having having tended to Shirley MacLaine after a suicide attempt, he says, well, I'm not going to take any money for this. At that point, he really wasn't a stock comic character at all. I th- I know what you're saying you're saying about spoilers, but I really think people should watch this film for the last scene, which is just brilliant. It was totally not what I expected, and. There is a visual, not gag, because it's not funny, but there's a sort of there's a visual element to it, and and you think, well, this this is this is almost a completely different film. Like, at the end, the film could have mm. had a very different ending to the one it does. You think, 
hang on, where's this film going? I think that it uh, it's from the 60s, so it's hard to say if it subverts tropes or it predates them. But if you go into this film thinking it's one thing, any one thing, you're going to be wrong. Whether you think it's a drama, a rom-com, a slapstick comedy, a workplace comedy, it's kind of all of these things and more. But just to jump over a little bit, the one sort of word and one thought came back to was Kafka. Yes. Now, this film, for what is generally quite a mainstream comedy film, felt incredibly Kafka-esque. Everything from the very early scenes when you've got Sissy Baxter working at his desk and you've got this almost surreal, bizarre, vanishing point number of desks behind him. Yes. In which he's this... He's, he's a worker ant, I grant you. And in, in just a bit of, of film knowledge. Like they made that effect by having all the desks which were real, but having them get progressively smaller and smaller in real life. Right. And having people sit at them who are progressively smaller and smaller and smaller. The back row where it's kids. That's so cool. And that's how they made that effect. I mean, it's... I would I, I, I say it was very early in the film, but it's so kind of surreal. This image of him, and then as he kind of grow, goes up and up in the rooms um, through his desks. But also, I think Kafka's is kind of a lot about the everyman crushed beneath the uh, the wheels of, of unseen forces. Mm. And whilst they aren't unseen forces here, for me, the overriding message and overriding theme of the film is about societal value. Yes, every character in this is crushed and constrained by either their own personal values or values that they have to jump the hoops that they jump through to get where they want to so they all have their end goal in mind because they can't see another option and then they're crushed by the process to get there cc Baxter had so many outs from his world he could have got out of his his predicament so many times by telling the truth mm. but he couldn't in in his mind telling the truth about what was going on to his bosses to his neighbors to his his girl which wasn't an option because of his constraint within these values of society. And that, and that makes the, the bit at the end when he finally breaks free from it just the most amazing catharsis for for him but also for the viewer. Because mm. there's no... Like, like you said, there are all those times where he could have got out of it but didn't. It's been building up and we've been thinking, come on, you can get out of this. And then finally he does. He's released from this treadmill to add to that i think there's another thing that all the characters in it in his office are mr somebody yeah to the point where it gets slightly confusing of who all the misters are but they're mr somebody mr somebody, mr sheldrake mr this and that adds that kind of surreal feeling of almost an impersonal god guiding baxter through this story yeah that he could just walk away from if he wanted to but he's almost it just wagging to this train and as you say the ending is when he kind of goes no i'm done and that's sort of the, the catharsis of the film those of you who know us both will be quite surprised by the fact that Rob's mentioned Kafka and also the fact that um, I didn't think of Kafka at all. I thought about it, Alice in Wonderland. Like you were saying, he, he makes the step up in the world. Um, and when he was carrying his things from his desk through the ranks of desk towards his office and then upstairs, it was this idea of, well, maybe it's a Kafkaesque situation, but it's something that is so... It just takes on elements of the surreal in a way that normal things do in Alice in Wonderland. So I, I was, think, I was mm. thinking about that. Well, like you say, with, with all the misters, I was thinking with similar roles in Alice in Wonderland when, well, whether it's Alice through the, through the Looking Glass, Glass or Alice in Wonderland, but um, 
this this idea of she she can't escape from this this kind of dreamlike situation. There there was that element to it mm-hmm. as well that he could never escape from it whenever he was given an out because he was caught up in this dream or whether it's a dream or a nightmare. I would agree that there's certainly a dreamlike nature to it. I mean, from my point of view, from the film point of view, I thought it was very interesting the the stage design of the whole film. I mean, the two things that really struck me is if you look at his three offices through the film he starts off at a desk in a room for people then he goes to his own office but it's got glass windows and then he goes to his third office which is on the top floor but has no windows to anyone else he works by himself isolated from the world as his as he progresses up this calendar he's more and more removed from his fellow man that initially he's with them and then there's actually like a, a see-through but physical barrier and then finally he ends up in this room where he has no interaction there's no view to anyone else he's just in a little box he has he says three windows but they look out onto the sky rather than anyone else. The loss of the everyman quality in his kind of relationship to the rest of the world, his buying into the values of the corporate life rather than the sort of societal life that are mirrored in that. And I think there's also kind of something to be said for the design of his house. Films of this era didn't tend to show that kind of homeliness. How do you mean? The house, his, his flat that he lives in, is very homely. It's very real world you know. You've got mixed furniture and you see the kitchen bathroom it feels like someone actually really lives there and if you compare that to certainly his office which feels almost clinical in its portrayal there's very if any personalization even in his offices when he has his own office you don't know it's his office no the, the most you get is a hat and a jacket but they are as as uniform as anything else you see, i was going to say he make he makes a point of saying that the hat is something for work and he makes this big song mm. and dance about about getting a new hat for work. So even that marker of homeliness, of it being his office, is necessarily part of his uniform, part of the fact that, that he is tied to work. I would agree. I think that the the point I'm, try, I'm trying to make is that in almost in the psyche of C.C. Baxter, you've got this, this, this room, this flat, that this is his home, and he, almost a real life, a complete life. But he spends the first half of the film being actively kept out of that room and thus that life by his decision to buy into the other one and in the film it's very physical he's kept out of his flat but i think that there's a a a subtext there an analogy there of him being kept out of that kind of life and i think it's noticeable that the end scene which we're not going to talk too much about that happens in his flat it doesn't happen on the streets or in central park or empire state or any of these kind of classic new york romantic moments it doesn't happen at the office doesn't happen at the party happens in this run-down, homely, threadbare flat. Because that's as flat as him in his life. I was thinking, thinking about this, actually, as you were talking. It's significant what this film is called for that reason. Because mm. the apartment is the main character in this film. I mean, it may be starring Jack Lemmon. It may be introducing a young Shirley MacLaine. But it's not. It is really about that flat. With good reason, as you said, the, the reason they come back to the apartment, the reason the film ends with the apartment, is that it's is particularly important. The, the, the apartment certainly, whilst being particularly, is also the MacGuffin of the film. Yeah, it's weird in that it is. It, it's the journey. It's the inciting incident. It's the. It's almost the mentor as well. Him getting the apartment back, even when he's much more bought into the world of the corporate ladder and his flat being used, he's very much like I'm ill. I need my flat. I want my flat back for a night. And there's a, a, a great sequence where he tries to organise moving all the people around so he can have one night in the flat by himself. Yes. Which doesn't work out. But all through it, even when he's bought into that world, there's still an element of him trying to get that flat back. And I think his illness is a very key moment in that, in that when he's at his lowest, 
he doesn't want time off from work. He doesn't want anyone. He just wants his flat for a night. And in that respect, it becomes even even more like a character that he just wants to spend time with. I was, I was thinking also about it's interesting what you said about about the the suicide attempt, Sean McLean, and the film takes a very different turn. But once you've you've established that that's where the film's going, you you sort of re readjust your bearings and you think, okay, I know where I am now. And then there's a mention of another suicide attempt, and it adjusts again. So it's like this film just continually throws off your perceptions of of which genre we're, we're settling in, and does doesn't let you settle. Mm. Something also to be said from the comedy of distance, I suppose I'd say, in that like when we watch these old films, things can be funny because of our distance from the time, rather than their actual intent to be funny. In particular, this film I talk, I talk about her brother-in-law. Her brother-in-law, when you watch this film is almost a comedy character. New York, taxi cab from the 60s. He's almost so that way that he becomes comedy. But I do wonder how much of that comedy comes from our distance from that time. Yes, I see what you mean. Because obviously some of it is slapstick and some of it's comedy. But I wonder whether, because that character over time has become such, such a trope and such a stereotype, that it's now funny, but would it have been funny to them then? I don't know if there's an answer beyond talking to someone from the 60s, but I do think that we have to bear that in mind when we talk about these things, is that some things are only funny by our, our distance from it. Mm, I have to adjust what I was thinking now, because I didn't think the brother-in-law was funny at all, and I just thought, thought the whole situation was deeply sad, and it's maybe because it comes on the back of a juxtaposition with Mr Sheldrake and his life at home, but I was primed to think about family mm. and how the, these two characters... Baxter and Fran don't don't really have families. In the case of Fran, she doesn't have a family which understands her, and that was that was something that I thought when when the brother-in-law came in, and I felt particularly sad about that situation. And I was wasn't thinking of him as, as a comedy character at all. But I can see what you're saying. The interaction between the brother-in-law and Baxter is very comedic, um, and there there is an element of slapstick in that. You've basically said what I was trying to say, but better. Um... <laughs> I feel like his story character, and what he did in the story, and what he was there to do, is sad. It's, you know, it, she, it's the overprotective brother. You know, it's the her having no family, but his kind of the way of talking about New York from the streets, kind of thing. Yes, yeah. That's where I'm like, I, I, I couldn't work out which film he was from. If you see what I'm saying, right? I see. Um, I, and I, my, my point was that I, I, I found his mannerisms funny, but I thought. I'm finding them funny because I live in 2015 and this has become so trope-based that it's no longer a serious thing. It's like, as an example, the 1920s high trousers. Yeah. That at the time are a style and no one questions them. But if I went out wearing them now or I saw someone in a film wearing them, I'm like, that's kind of funny because they're incredibly high. But I think that's, as I say, the distance from it makes his mannerisms funny or at least a disconnect from his plot role. Well, I'm I'm not sure either. You're right, it would... I want to also think about things more about the character of, of Fran herself. Like, what what is what is the role of Fran in this film, and what does it have to say about the role of women? I think that the film kind of does bad things in that it kind of makes all women either mistresses, ex mistresses, clueless wives, or her the nag. I can't think of a character in it who that isn't in those categories. Doctor's wife. Um, falls into two of those categories, and that she's a clueless wife and a nag. Yes. So you're right. The 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 women in this film do not come off well. In spite of that, does does 
Fran do interesting things? I think she does in that ultimately she's the one with agency at the end of the film. Mm. Uh, I think that very often, you know, we, we tend to view out of films at least tend to view women as prizes to be won and that almost that, that a lot of rom-coms fall into what I'd call sort of the, the Hercules films where the man has to overcome all these obstacles to be worthy of the woman and uh, maybe those obstacles are moving out of home or not seeing his wife or, or whatever like it's all about his growth or, or her, someone's growth yes. to become worthy of that love and then they go and claim that love great example is um pretty woman when he again uh, rocks up gets the girl and it, it, he has the agency to go and get her as if he's an inert object to kind of win whereas in this baxter's kind of given up he, at the end he's kind of opted out from it he, he he makes the big decision to step away from his corporate life but it isn't for her he's just like you know what this isn't for me but when it comes to the, the, the conclusion of the film she is the one with agency even up to the very almost very final line yes exactly she's the one making the calls she's the one making decisions to do these things i think that films from the 60s and even films in days still suffer from problems around females and a lot of films are product of their time but i certainly did feel that fran very much had her own mind and even early on when there's a lot about how everyone's trying to date her and no one can admittedly she's always presented as a dateable object rather than an object of herself but i think that she has some age and she has some i suppose some spunk to her in that the way she talks to the men isn't subservient it isn't small compared to them yeah and also the the attempts of baxter to be protective of her or the attempts of everyone to be protective of her are seen to be redundant the doctor says with care that verges on being patronizing like this this may happen again after the the suicide attempt and a lot of the rest of the film is a visual gag or a, a a running gag about Fran trying to kill herself, except she doesn't, and she has no interest in doing so. And it's all in Baxter's head that she might be doing something like that, with him sort of hiding hiding sharp objects objects from her and things like that in this environment in which men are seen to be incredibly patronising to women and behave in this way. She has the agency to say you you cannot define me and her response her response to Baxter being protective of her is sort of a feature of So I think that the film is, is is notable that it's kind of takes place in New York. Mm. But unlike a lot of New York films, New York didn't feel like a character in it. No. And that's that's interesting when well, we talked about the, the apartment being a character and when you say the the interesting things you say about the office and the scenes in the office and what is done with the set there, um, it, it does either take place in the apartment or in the office. There's no sense of, like you said, of New York as a character, of the wider world. It's quite claustrophobic and it's all, it also answered this, this element of, of a dream-like quality to the film because there's no exterior surface at all there's no sense of place i mean obviously there's a sense of like small places in, in location but there's no sense of placing these things I mean, he says in the very opening monologue where his flat is but it doesn't matter and where it offers is doesn't matter there's a running thing through the film but he's now on floor 27 now on floor 17 you get a feeling that, that almost these localized spaces matter far more to the film than 
its general place in the world. Yes, like like you said, you can't see the outside world from the windows. No, that final office when there are windows on the outside world, you can't. You've still got no frame of reference. The location in the building seems to matter much more than than where the building is. And I think that adds to the set, almost the, the timeless quality of it. Clearly, this is a film from fifty five years ago. But it didn't feel like a film for two years ago. It felt like a story that could be told tomorrow. That the fact that it isn't placed in a certain worldly place adds to that timeless feel of it, and that feeling that it kind of could exist anywhere to anyone. Mm. The only other point I've got to raise, um, and I don't have an answer to this, is whether there's something in the idea of this being an early '60s film, and it being about almost the rejection of the monoculture of corporate America. Probably the 60s saw the birth of the counterculture movement, and whilst it isn't a hippie film in any way, a lot of it is about the pointlessness and the rejection of corporate life. Yeah. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, Billy Wilder here is shadowing some of that dissatisfaction that was existing with the American dream and the nuclear family and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you see, that's that's really interesting, because you don't... When you think of dissatisfaction with the American dream, you think of hippies and taking drugs and thinking okay i'm 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 going to stick it to the man and i'm going to go on a road trip you don't think of people mm. within the american dream within this idea of corporate america thinking i'm deeply unhappy with my lot in life which is what you get from cc baxter yeah i think there's a sort of a dominance of, of things like uh, easy rider being you know well that's the filmic you know counterculture and stylistically it certainly is you know that that kind of very much play with the idea of what a film was and how to make a film but i do think that films like this which very much do follow the rules of what a of of a of a narrative proscenium arch style film still have a lot to say about that kind of american the death of the american dream or death of american family that happened in the 60s i think that there's the doctor who does seem to have a very happy marriage obviously there are clueless about baxter and his activities but they seem happy they seem in love they have a party and you've got that portrayed as a family but then you've got mr sheldrake and his family who are almost the the pinnacle of the american dream big house big job 2.4 kids and we all know from that film that it's an utter lie yeah and i think there's something in here about like the growing disillusionment of that american dream i was thinking when you said that of the families in it's a wonderful life and how this sort of scene of someone on the phone and other people crowding around is is something that maybe this film is is doing something with and saying people were unhappy and did have secret lives and it wasn't all... I suppose It's a Wonderful Life isn't particularly uplifting until the end, but there was this very much this idea of the happy American family, and that's something you certainly don't get in this film. Yeah, so I think this film is a lot cleverer than than perhaps it's given credit for as a film, as an early Billy Wilder film. It's certainly cleverer than I give credit for, I will admit. I think one thing we've touched on throughout this whole podcast is the ending of this film. And I think one of the strengths of this film is its ending. I think some of the films that exist these days and into the time work very hard to tie up all the loose ends, I'd say. Mm. And this film doesn't seek to. It doesn't tell you what happens next. It doesn't seek to tell you everything's going to work out well. It, you know, we, we've mentioned that, uh, that Baxter tends to sort of reject the corporate life at the end and walks out of his job. But you don't see him get another job. You don't know how you can pay the bills no you don't see the resolution of all the issues in the film yeah and i think in in that in that respect it's very it's it's just it's just real this film it's what happens in life 
and you you don't get a, a nice ending with with those loose endings tied up and you and you know oh this is what's going to happen with me and this is what's going to happen with person x and person y and it's just it's just very true to true to life in that respect i don't really have the answer to this but i think it manages to not answer all the questions but not leave you wanting more mm. Yes. I, I'm not after a sequel to the apartment. I don't want to know how it played out for them. I feel that the film completed a narrative journey without answering every single question. I think that that's something that we may get onto this later, but that's that's something that Billy Wilder does very well in his films is that sense of resolving the film and not really resolving anything at all, but leaving you with the feeling that you're quite happy with things as, as they are, completely unresolved. No, no, no world has changed here, but uh, a lot's changed for people in that world. Well, that's that, sh- that should probably lead into recommendation. I've got two for this week. One of the era and one not. The first one I'm going to recommend is Some Like It Hot. Most of you have seen this, but I think this very much is a similar film of a similar era, of a similar style, that often we think is a slapstick comedy but has got hidden depths to it. My recommendations are now down from two to one, because that was on mine as well. It's... it's... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I've, I'm I've sorry. Got, no, <laughs> got notes on this. Is pretty well done. 1959. Oh, oh, then I, I will leave Brokenation there and let you kind of fill in the gaps. The other one I'm going to recommend is, as we often said, this is the uh, Kevin Smith podcast. Is a film called Jersey Girl. Okay. And Kevin Smith made Jersey Girl post the viewer skew, and it did really badly. And I think that's because it doesn't play by the traditional rom-com rules in the same way this film doesn't. Mm. I don't think it's as masterful a film. I don't think it's as good as this film. But I think that it is a it is a modern rom com that tries to do interesting work in the rom com genre. It feels much like the film. It follows the natural structure. It isn't like you know completely out of left field as a rom com. But it certainly subverts some of the the tropes of that thing without being subversive. Okay, if that makes sense. I say don't expect the quality you're getting in the apartment from the Jersey Girl. But it's a modern version of the same kind of idea. I do think it is probably an underrated gem. I would say that it's not it's not gonna win an Oscar, it's not gonna change your world. But I think it's far better than the than the stick it gets. As as I said, one of my recommendations this week was Some Like It Heart, which is partly for the fact that it's similar era, it's Billy Wilder the year before. Um also has Jack Lemon in it. And partly because this has an amazing last line, as The Apartment does. And my second recommendation would be from the early 70s. And it's also on the theme of brilliant endings. And it's it's one of my favourite films of all time. Certainly top five, maybe top one. Although there are others five of that. It's The Sting from 1973. And this is cool. possibly nostalgia, because I saw it as a teen and... It's possibly also because I love heist movies movies and TV dramas. The rubbish are the better. I mean, I could watch Hustle for hours and have done. (laughs) Uh, But also, this is one of the... It goes back to what we were saying about doing interesting things with genre, that this could be a film, a, a slapstick film, and it could be... I mean, it's not a musical, but there are times when you're reminded of for example, the drama in, in Cat Baloo or in um, West Side Story, if it not, uh, Guys and Dolls, something like that. But then there mm-hmm. are deeply poignant moments in this between Redford and Paul Newman, and I think there's... I'm, I'm struggling to 
to defend this choice for any, for any other reason that I love this film but well, I would say it's brilliant and well worth watching I will say this that uh, as teenagers you did turn me on to the stink good I hadn't heard of it until you recommended it to me and I'm actually sitting at my desk looking at my VHS copy of it right now that I bought when, when I was probably 15 or 16 uh, off your recommendation and watched it and loved it and still own. How, out of interest how many VHS's do you have? somewhere around probably 200 are you still buying VHS's? yes yeah I bought about five the weekend i've trimmed the collection a lot these days so if i own it on dvd i don't tend to keep the vhs unless the vhs itself has meaning to me most of the collection is things that have just never made it to uh dvd and i'm never gonna make dvd they are the video nasties the um the 80s schlock horror sort of stuff so that's what the collection is with with trepidation there i've got to say what is your film for next week the, the next week i think uh, having gone old school it's time to go brand new school so next week we're going to be talking about jurassic world well i look forward to that i look forward to seeing it as well i'm going to see it tomorrow evening please do get in touch people the prestige podcast on twitter and you can find me at kaiju industries on twitter and you can find me at life underscore academic And we will see you guys next week uh, for some more film chatting all about Jurassic World. is a kaiju industries production check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash kaiju industries Rawr. Arg.